Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Lee Ledbetter. I have been the campus minister with RUF International at UT for the last 13 years, uh, working with students and scholars from around the world who have come to uh, do research and advance their careers here at UT. Uh, my family and I are from this area, and we've actually been worshiping with Resurrection since earlier this year. Uh, we're glad that you're uh, here with us, if you're here in person or joining us online. We are continuing this morning a series that we have begun called Encounters with Jesus. And we're looking at different conversations that Jesus has with people in the Gospels to learn more about who he is and how that we can relate to him. And if you were here last week or if maybe you watched online, um, you remember that Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus, Israel's teacher. And the point Jesus makes to Nicodemus is that you and I must be born again. We must be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit to enter the kingdom of God and even just to see and understand the things of God. So this week, we're going to take a detour from John's gospel, and we're going to dip into Matthew's gospel, and we're going to see that faith doesn't always come from the places that we would expect it to come from, and it's sometimes nowhere to be found in the people that we would typically look to as models of spirituality. If you think about the religious leaders in Jesus' day, these are people who should have understood faith more than anyone else, and what Jesus says about them is that you honor me with your lips but your hearts are far from me. And even his disciples, right? They show moments of promise, moments of brilliance, and yet their own faith is very immature until after the resurrection. But then we run across these unexpected people in the Gospels who remind us that faith is something that anyone can have because mercy is something God wants everyone to experience. And that includes cultural and religious outsiders, people like the woman that we're going to encounter in our text this morning. And so Matthew records for us what Jesus has been doing, how he's been ministering to people. He's been preaching the good news of the kingdom. He's been healing the sick. He's been calming storms. He's been casting out demons. He's even been raising the dead. And he's tired. He's looking to rest. He's looking to recharge. And so he actually leaves the region of Galilee where he conducts the vast majority of, ministry, of his ministry and he heads into the neighboring region of Phoenicia where the city of Tyre happens to be the metropolitan center. And it's his first and apparently maybe his only excursion outside the borders of Israel and into Gentile territory. He's looking forward to downtime, and that is where we pick up our passage in Matthew chapter 15. And so if you'll read with me, you can follow along in your bulletin or in your Bibles if you have your Bible with you. This is Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt down before him, knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. 
And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the gospel of our Lord. Let's take a moment and pray for the preaching of the word. Father, we thank you that you've brought us here this morning. We also thank you that you have spoken through your word and you have not left us in darkness. Would you please speak now by the power of your Holy Spirit, even through the foolishness of preaching. Lord, it's our desire, it's my prayer that you would satisfy us this morning with your unfailing love in Christ so that we might sing and be glad all of our days. Amen. Well, uh, hopefully, you've, if you haven't read this before, even just kind of reading it together this morning, you see what a fascinating passage this is. Uh, if we're thinking at all, it might sound a little confusing, even a little shocking. I mean, there's talk of demons. There's talk of lost sheep. There's talk of children's bread and dogs. And so if you're bored this morning, I guess you can blame me, but you certainly cannot blame the text. It's an incredible text. And I think the big idea that we get from this text this morning, the reason this story is in the Bible is to help us see something simple, that faith grabs hold of the mercy that Jesus offers. Faith grabs hold of the mercy that Jesus offers. We can say a lot of things about faith, but this morning I want us to see three things from our text. I want us to see that faith is humble, faith is also bold, and faith is focused. It's humble, it's bold, and it's focused. And we get an idea of what this faith, of what faith looks like by looking at this woman in our text. Who is this woman? We're not given her name, and we're really only given a couple of pieces of information about her. One thing we know is that she's a Canaanite. Verse 22 tells us that she's from the district of the Tyre, the district of Tyre and Sidon. And these are ancient cities about 50 miles away from the Mediterranean Sea. Mediterranean Sea touched places like Southern Europe and North Africa and Lebanon and Syria and Turkey. Matthew tells us that not only is she a Gentile, that means she's not a Jew. She's not one of God's chosen people, but even worse, she's a Canaanite. You might remember that the Canaanites, her ancestors, had been enemies of the people of Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years. So we're told she's a Canaanite. We're also told that she's a woman. And her mother, she's a mother, and uh, she is the mother of a girl who's being oppressed by a demon, by an evil spirit, an unclean spirit. She is being harassed, and she has no idea how to deal with this problem, and mom is worried. I know as modern scientific people, uh, especially people in the West, there are many people, maybe some of you here in this room, who don't believe in things like demons or angels or God. We're often told, including on university campuses, I hear this a lot, that the physical universe, right, what we can see, what we can hear, what we can measure. The physical universe is all that there is. And I think it's important to note that this is merely an assumption. This itself is a position of faith. This is not something that you can test and not something that you can prove. There are many ancient cultures that did believe in God or gods or the spiritual world. And many people in the East still do. 
And there are plenty of scientists as well as plenty common people in the West today who see no problem with doing science and also having a robust faith in the supernatural world. And so the Bible is not embarrassed to include a story about a mother whose daughter is being oppressed by a demon. There is an unseen spiritual reality all around us, all the time. And we see this mother, this Canaanite woman, coming to Jesus with faith that he can help her. And so we notice again a few things about her faith. And the first is that her faith is humble. Uh, Many of us, including myself, are relieved that college football is happening. We don't have to talk about the game that took place uh, yesterday, one particular game. But let's talk for a minute about the game that took place in 2016, that great comeback against Georgia where Josh Dobbs threw that Hail Mary to, I believe it was Juwan Jennings, who went up and grabbed it in the end zone. Definitely one of my favorite comebacks, at least in Tennessee football history. But arguably, the greatest comeback in college football history took place in 1982. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's the game that took place between Stanford and California. And John Elway, who was the Stanford quarterback, went on to become, of course, a future uh, NFL star. He had just led his team down the field. The kicker nailed what was sure to be the game-winning field goal with four seconds left. Stanford was up 20 to 19, four seconds left. The place erupts. The Stanford sidelines go crazy. Fans start pouring onto the field. I mean, the game is over. Four seconds left on the clock. What could happen? Even the stadium announcer said only a miracle could save the Bears now. Well, what happened next probably was at least semi-miraculous. And it probably also looked a little bit hokey to most people watching, especially football analysts and experts And I guarantee you people would have mocked the team if things had turned out differently. But California was out of options, and they were not too proud to try the one crazy thing that might actually work, and that was the lateral. California player caught the kickoff at their 45-yard line. He ran as far as he could, and right as he's about to get hit, he pitches the ball, he laterals the ball, to a teammate. That guy then runs further, and right when he's about to get tackled, he pitches it to another teammate. So five laterals in 57 yards later, as California players with the ball kind of snake their way through a sea of fans and cheerleaders and players and even band members, they reach the end zone with the ball, and they score the game-winning touchdown, practically run over one of the trombone players in the process. It's fun to watch on Google. It was so dramatic a finish that the official, right, who signals for the touchdown, he said he felt like uh, an atomic bomb had been dropped and that World War III might have actually started. Well, what happened that day in those last four seconds was incredible, but it happened for only one reason. The reason California won was because they threw aside all sense of self-respect and dignity in order to get what they thought could be theirs. They believed in doing what might have looked ridiculous to others, even when everyone else had counted them out. And for you and I, 
to live with faith, it means that we've got to forget ourselves. That means we're not thinking too highly of ourselves. We're not thinking too little of ourselves. We don't need to throw our weight around to get attention and to impress other people. Neither do we conclude that we're worthless and are worth throwing away. We are free because we have found something, something of greater weight, greater value, greater power, and greater beauty, something outside of ourselves that we are connected to. And we see this in the portrait of this Canaanite mother. We see it in what she says and how she says it. Verse 22 records her crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Well, why is she coming to Jesus? I think that's a valid question. And in some ways, the answer seems almost too obvious to even mention. She's coming to Jesus, right? Because the most precious thing in her life, her daughter, is suffering under an indescribably dark power. And as a mother, her own heart would have been pierced a thousand times with anguish. And she's at the end of her rope. And she's convinced of one thing, that she cannot fix her daughter, and that because of that, she cannot fix her own life either. So where does she turn? And where do you and I turn when we realize that the sin and the spiritual darkness and the misery of this life are too much for us to bear? Hopefully we turn to Jesus because true faith and the road to true happiness begins and continues with admitting that you and I need help from outside of ourselves. We need to be connected to the person who has the power to put all the broken pieces of our life back together. And what our passage is telling us is that that person is Jesus Christ. It seems fair to assume that God in his wisdom actually used this woman's real-life crisis, her real felt need to drive her to genuine saving faith in Jesus. And not just a faith that was temporary, that Jesus could fix her problem so she could go on by herself without Jesus living happily ever after, but a faith that in Jesus she would encounter and experience and receive the faithful love of God that could never be lost and never be taken away from her. We're not told how, but somehow this woman has heard about Jesus. She's heard about his persuasive teaching. She's heard of his powerful actions, and she comes to him like someone would come before a king, both humble and respectful. She has a great need, and she begs him for mercy. And even the way she physically approaches Jesus, if you noticed in our text, is significant. Verse 25 tells us that she came and she knelt before Jesus. She bowed down before him. And so the posture of her body reflected the posture of her heart. She was a mother of deep concern, but she approaches Jesus with deep respect. And it's not for nothing that she calls him the Lord, son of David. If you don't know, son of David was a royal title It was a reference to David, the second king of Israel, a thousand years before the time of Jesus. Well, David's throne had actually been empty for 600 years. There was no king. There was no son of David. But as Jesus has been going through the towns and villages of Israel, he's been telling people that the kingdom of God had now come to earth in him. And as he's been healing those who were sick, getting rid of demons, raising the dead, some people had actually started to ask, 
Could this be the son of David? Could this be the servant king that God had promised long ago? The one who would both rescue his people and rule the nations with justice. And so the way she addresses Jesus seems to point to an even greater hope than the hope that Jesus would heal her daughter, as natural and as noble as that desire itself was. It seems to point to an even deeper hope that she had, that the kingdom of God had broken into history in Jesus the King, the King who would deliver God's people then and now, deliver us from everything that binds us, from our condemnation, from our shame, from death, and from the forces of evil. And you and I come to Jesus, we need to come to Jesus in faith that is marked by humility. And that's a faith that bends down before him and recognizes that he is the king. And while we might live in a democracy or a federal republic, whatever the technical description of the U.S. government is, um, Jesus is the ruler of all, and he's the royal savior of his people. And he's not up for re-election in November. He is the king. He is the king. And as scripture says, one day every knee will bow before him and confess that he is Lord. Being humble also means that we don't have to pretend like we have it all together. And this is hard for us. This is hard for me because we don't like to look vulnerable. We don't like to look weak. Uh, Just this uh, week, this past week, as I was working on this sermon, I texted a friend, another campus minister in another state, and I almost didn't send the message. And I was going to ask him for prayer uh, for this morning. And the reason I didn't almost, almost didn't send the message was because I didn't want him to start thinking, like, what's wrong with him? Like, does he have COVID? Uh, Is there, like, some problem? Like, why is he reaching out to me? The simple fact of me reaching out to him, being vulnerable, asking for prayer was hard in that moment. I didn't want to be weak. I didn't want to admit that I actually needed prayer, but I did. My friend was glad that I reached out to him. He encouraged me. He prayed for me. And what blessed freedom there is in self-forgetfulness. And when you and I come in humble faith to Jesus like this Canaanite woman, we'll be able to forget ourselves and to find Jesus and his mercy that are enough to meet our deepest needs. And that's true if you're coming, him, coming to him today like you've come to him for as long as you can remember. It is also true if you come to him today as king and savior for the very first time. Faith grabs hold of the mercy that Jesus offers, and that faith is humble. But that faith is also bold. It's a faith that stands up. And I love what Tim Keller says here about parents uh, as he reflects on Jesus' encounter with this Canaanite woman. He's got a book called The King's Cross. Maybe some of you have read it. Among other things, he writes this. He says, there are cowards, there are regular people, there are heroes, and then there are parents. Parents, at least good ones, I imagine most of us here this morning are trying to be good parents. We love our kids and we're willing to do whatever it takes to help them and to protect them. I remember years ago being on a father-son retreat with my oldest son, Daniel, who's now a junior at Wheaton College, and this is for his school, and we're out in the middle of nowhere, and Jennifer, my wife, was in Atlanta at that time, 
uh, visiting her sister. My younger son, who's now a freshman at UT, Philip, was staying with my sister here in Knoxville. Late at night, um, I get a call from my sister, and my sister told me, hey, Philip is on the couch. He's barely moving. I just took his temperature, and it's 107. Well, my mind shifted into high gear. I knew I had to make quick and firm decisions, and I drove probably 100 or more uh, to get from wherever I was to the hospital where Philip and my sister were. I didn't care what people thought about me as I was driving. I didn't care what the police thought or what they might have done if they had pulled me over. I get to the hospital. The hospital runs tests. They give him medicine, of course. They take his temperature, and we find out that Her thermometer was actually faulty. His temperature was 104, not 107. I'm still a little worried, but not as worried. Over the next few hours, the fever finally leaves him, and we're able to go home. I'm so exhausted when I get home, but I'm so relieved. And as probably you can identify with, those of you who are parents, when I got that phone call from my sister, I didn't have to think about how to react. I dropped everything. I left everything, tent, sleeping bag. I didn't make sure my other son was taken care of, but I left everything and drove as fast as I could. I wanted to be able to be there with Philip to help him in any way that I could. And the reality is that the situation was out of my hands. There was nothing that I could do except to try to trust the doctors and ultimately to struggle to trust God. But I guarantee you my prayers on the way to the hospital, they were bold because I was desperate. My son was sick, and I did not know if he would make it. Well, the mother in this story loves her daughter, and she's desperate, and she will do anything to help her daughter get well. So she's come to believe that Jesus is her only hope, and she approaches him boldly and asks him to heal her daughter. But here is where the problem is, and here is where our passage gets pretty interesting, because this woman has no right to approach Jesus and ask him anything. Why is that? Well, she's a woman. And in that day, Jewish rabbis, Jewish teachers were not even allowed. They didn't even practice speaking to their own female family members in public. A little different today, but that's how it was back then. So she's a woman. She's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. And Jews and Gentiles are not interacting with one another. She's also a pagan, as I've mentioned. Her people, the Canaanites, they worshiped other gods, false gods. And she's a mother of a demon-possessed daughter, which for everybody there would have been a sure sign that God was against her and would have had nothing to do with her. The commentators note that by all the cultural standards of her day, she was an outsider and was not worthy to ask Jesus to do anything for her. But she does ask. She cries out, have mercy on me, O Lord. And in her asking, she has to fight through so many barriers. She has to knock down so many walls and deal with so many heartaches and challenges. And I think if we're honest with each other this morning, that is how real faith is for us sometimes too. We have these moments of inspiration like the disciples did up on the mountain of transfiguration when they're with Jesus and they actually want to build houses so they can stay there, right? It's a great time. We have times when we've been touched by God's presence and when we've been strengthened by his spirit. That may be a a meaningful time in scripture, 
encouraging fellowship with a friend or a small group, maybe an RPI group or a Bible study here at Resurrection. Could be experiencing an answer to prayer or even just being out in nature, enjoying the glory of God and creation. And those times we feel pretty strong. Life seems to be going okay. It seems to be working. And we're even trying to be intentional about trusting God and living out our faith. But then something happens. And like Peter, when Jesus calls Peter to step out of the boat and walk on water towards him, like Peter, we begin to sink and we grow terrified that Jesus is going to let us drown. And maybe you give, it in, you give in to an old sin, the sin of gossip or lust or pride or anger or substance abuse, or someone hurts you through neglect or abuse or criticism or a lack of confidence in you. Life often shifts on us. Work grows monotonous or maybe crazy busy. A relationship becomes complicated. A decision that you thought you'd work through suddenly becomes confusing again. And whatever it is, persevering with a desperate and bold faith feels impossible at those times and maybe even foolish. And so we counter that with coming up with you know, some sort of 10-point action plan that we can execute so we can kind of maintain the illusion of staying in control. Or maybe we just avoid faith by hiding, by hiding in our shame or in our sorrows or perhaps settling for lesser, easier, more reasonable prayers, requests to bring to God. What has it been and what is it right now for you in your life that seems to be blocking the pathway to bold faith? Where do you feel trapped and exhausted and wondering if Jesus has the ability or the intention to bring you through what you're facing? Remember, our God is able to do far more than we ask or can even imagine. So we can pray big prayers. We can pray for his kingdom to come. Because Jesus the King has already come, and he loves it when we make bold asks of him. And he will answer, though he won't always answer in the way that we might have chosen. We need a faith that stands up and stands firm, even when we feel weak and even when barriers seem like they might never go away. And I want to think for a minute about the barriers that this Canaanite mother would have had. Think about her life situation and how terrible it would have been. Her community and family surely would have talked badly about her, right? They would have assumed that she or her daughter had done something to deserve the demon. She would have lived with daily disgrace and disappointment. I guarantee you she wasn't getting invitations to dinner. Nobody was asking her daughter to go trick-or-treating in their neighborhood, Her life situation was hard, and then she has to deal with the disciples who are frustrated with her because Jews didn't respect Gentiles, and they often thought of them as dogs. That's why in verse 23, his disciples urged Jesus, send her away, for she's crying out after us. Their words surely would have just poured salt on a wound that was already open. But it's the third barrier that I think is the biggest barrier that she has to fight through. And this comes from Jesus himself. Three times Jesus responds to her in a way that seems confusing and even rude. The first time 
is right after she comes to him asking for help. There's only silence. In verse 23, 23 we read, he did not answer her a word. Radio silence from Jesus. The second time he responds in verse 24, he tells her that he's only been sent by God to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And what he seems to be saying is that because you're a Gentile, God hasn't sent me for you, and I'm not interested in helping you. But it's actually his third response that's the most shocking of all. As she's on her knees begging him for mercy, Jesus tells her in verse 26, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What in the world is he trying to tell her? Because it sure sounds like an insult, and specifically a racial insult. He seems to be saying that the Jews were God's children, but Gentiles, people like you, are dogs. But here's where we see again her bold faith. It's where we see her faith stand up despite all of the barriers, her difficult life situation, the disciples who are adding fuel to the fire, and even the disturbing way that Jesus himself responds to her. This woman pushes past all of those barriers to pursue Jesus, to get the mercy that she needs. And that is what faith does. It comes humbly, but it comes boldly to grab hold of the mercy that God offers us in Jesus. Listen again to the woman's response. It's brave and it's also brilliant. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus said, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And here's her response. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And I think we've got to be careful as we read the text to not misunderstand the words that Jesus spoke to her. It's not what it, at first, what it at first appears to be. Jesus is not trying to shame her, and he is not trying to slam the door on her faith. He is actually seeking to draw faith out of her. And at the same time, he's seeking to dispel the prejudices that his own disciples were surely to have had. Prejudice, prejudice against her as a woman, as a Gentile, as a pagan, and someone whose family was under the control of the evil one. And it's interesting to, to note that when Jesus uses the word dog here, he actually uses a form of the word that means little dog or puppy. And uh, back then, sometimes people would have these little dogs, these house pets, and they would sit under the table as a, as a family gathered for a meal. Probably not too different from families today who have kids. Kids would sometimes accidentally or probably more likely intentionally drop some crumbs, some food on the floor uh, for the dogs to eat. And so Jesus is telling her what in fact as a mother she already knows. The children eat first and then the little dogs. And so what he means is that in God's plan for spreading out his kindness to every nation, he chose to begin with Israel. Not because Israel deserved to be first, but simply because he chose to start there. So at this stage of Jesus' ministry, his focus actually needs to be on Israel because of God's promises to the patriarchs. But soon enough, right, after the resurrection, his apostles will be sent out to every nation, every people group on earth. 
This woman's faith is amazing. She doesn't argue with Jesus, if you'll notice. She accepts the fact that she doesn't have a place at the table. She doesn't insist that she has a right to Jesus' mercy or that he owes her anything. And yet her response to Jesus, which is, yet even the dogs get fed, her response is basically saying this, don't give me what I deserve. Please give me what I don't deserve because you are good. Show me mercy because I believe that's the kind of person that you are. And the conversation ends with Jesus exploding with praise for her in verse 28. Verse 28 says, Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So faith is humble, and it is also bold, because it asks Jesus for the mercy that we need, and he gives it gladly. There will be times in our lives when we do everything right, so to speak. We ask humbly, we come to him boldly, and we cry out for mercy in a crisis or perhaps in some kind of chronic battle, and he does not seem to answer us a word. And that silence can be deafening. And at times when we do hear him speak and we do see him act, It's not what we expected, and it's not what we asked for. In fact, it may be the very opposite of what we think we need. But Jesus' intention and his commitment to you and to me, despite any and all appearances to the contrary, is to save and to heal our broken lives. Faith is humble because it bends down. Faith is bold because it stands up. And finally, we see that faith is focused It sees what it needs. We have great neighbors. We've been in our house for about four months now. Um, Need to get to know some other neighbors. But one set of neighbors right next door, they're wonderful people, and they have this adorable dog named Buster. And Buster has, for very explainable reasons actually, has developed this habit of coming through our fence and actually coming into our house. And it's because of a conspiracy that my daughter, Nisa, has with her best friend, Annabelle, who lives next door. They leave the gate open. They leave the door open at times so Buster can make his way in and hang with the family. Well, apparently Buster thinks that because Annabelle's sweet and because he's with her, that if he hangs around long enough and happens to come into a room where I am with a plate of food that I'm going to be happy to share my food with him. Well, Buster, at this point in our relationship, he does not know what kind of neighbor I am. Uh, He doesn't know that I have successfully deflected questions for the better part of 20 years, deflected requests on behalf of my kids to get a dog. And so there is precious Little evidence that I'm going to give that dog anything. And yet, when Buster comes in, he stares, and he stares, and he stares. And even when he's pretending to not stare, he's still staring. And, of course, I stare back at him. But he stares because he sees what he needs. And he needs, at least he thinks he needs, my food. And he is focused on it like a laser. You and I are like Buster in this sense. We need to be focused on one thing supremely. We need to be focused on the gospel. 
the good news of God's mercy to us in Jesus because it really does contain the answers, the healing, the love, and the hope that we need more than anything else. And fortunately, Jesus is much more gracious and welcoming than I am to Buster, although I do pet Buster. The faith of the woman in this passage this morning is great, and Jesus praises her for it. She's a kind of model of faith for you and I. But her faith is great, especially for this reason, because she sees a great Savior. This is what has captured her attention. This is what has drawn her heart. She is responding to who Jesus is. And we, too, should focus our attention on Jesus and the gospel of grace. As we try to live out our faith, we, too, need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So what do we see in Jesus through this encounter in Matthew 15? I think we see his power and we see his compassion. We see that he has the authority to overcome every spiritual force that would threaten to separate us from God. And we see that Jesus is tender and kind, something that we have only begun to experience if we're in Christ. It's a good 11 chapters later in Matthew's gospel before we see most clearly Jesus' glory revealed as he is lifted up on a Roman cross, as he dies for his enemies and cries out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And on that same Christ, on that, on that same cross, he cries out also, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is Jesus doing? What is he doing on that cross? He's doing exactly what he came into the world to do as the son of David. He came to live and to die and to be raised again for people like the woman in our text and for people like you and me here, people who were outsiders to God, people who were strangers to his mercy. In one sense, at that moment in redemptive history, the Canaanite woman was about the most unlikely person on earth to receive mercy from Jesus. But we know now from what the Bible teaches that we are just as undeserving and we are just as needy, no matter how cleaned up we are on the outside, just as needy for the mercy of God and just as accepted and loved as this woman was. Our God is passionate. He is passionate about gathering people for himself from every racial and ethnic background, and from across all the educational and economic spectrums. Our God is passionate about seeking out the lost from every faith tradition and turning their hearts to embrace him as king and savior, to find the mercy and the rest that they need. Jesus left the love of heaven. He crossed every barrier that existed between us and a holy God so that we could have forgiveness and new life and share forever in the love of the Trinity. In the 19th century in Scotland, there was a pastor and hymn writer by the name of Horatius Bonar, and he wrote a number of hymns. One of his most beautiful hymns, I think, is, is a hymn that we've sung here at Resurrection before. It's called, Upon a Life That I Did Not Live. And I just want to read a few of the lines of this hymn. Bonar writes, Not on the tears which I have shed, not on the sorrows I have known, another's tears, 
another's griefs. On these I rest, on these alone. Lord, I believe, oh, deal with me. As one who has thy word believed, I take the gift, Lord, look on me as one who has thy gift received. Oh, Jesus, son of God, I build on what thy cross has done for me. There both my life and death I read, my guilt and pardon there I see. And I think that song so beautifully captures what we see in this encounter between Jesus and the Canaanite woman, that faith grabs hold of the mercy of God. It connects us to that mercy. And that faith is a faith that's humble. It's a faith that's bold. It's a faith that's focused. And it is not that our faith, that your faith or my faith has to be perfect. It's not going to be. And it's not that our faith is itself righteousness or righteous, but it's because faith grabs on to the righteousness of another, that it attaches us to the life that Jesus lived and the death that Jesus died. It is his suffering. It is his cross that takes away our condemnation and clothes us with salvation. God loves us because of Jesus. And just as he will never take away his love for his son, he will never take away his love for all of those connected to the son. Wherever the places are of need in your life this morning, whether that is in parenting or in dealing with parents, whether it's school or work, your health, or maybe how you feel about your body this morning, challenges in marriage or in a relationship with a friend, wrestling with emotions that maybe feel out of control, or just discouraged because if you're being honest, you don't really like who you are right now. These are the very burdens that Jesus knows that you and I carry, and he wants us to bring those burdens to him. He wants us to know that he carries those burdens for us and with us. The Canaanite woman in our passage was willing to settle for crumbs that fell from the master's table But Jesus, the master, has given us himself as the bread of life. And he has promised that a day is coming in the future when all his children who look to him as Savior, both Gentiles and Jews, people from the north and the south and the east and the west, all his people will feast together with him around his table with great joy forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning and this week to grab hold of your mercy. It is what we need more than anything else to have real faith, even weak faith, but real faith. Please continue your work of grace in our hearts just as you have started it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you carry it to completion even under the day of Christ Jesus? Would you even now feed us as we feast at your table? Amen.